Hello, my name is Phil Burton, and I'm very thankful to be a part of this webinar on inclusive leadership, illuminating our blind spots. I'm pleased to be here with two colleagues from CMA Global, Dr. Ashley Parker and Dr. Ruben Falogi, to share valuable information and provide important action steps that you can take toward inclusive leadership. First, some introductions. I'm Phil Burton, as I mentioned, I've been in healthcare over 20 years, spanning from global pharmaceutical and medical device companies to healthcare administration and consulting the last 10 years around diversity, equity, and inclusion. I joined with Kiefer, a global executive search firm, as well as an advisory firm, where we're focused on improving quality of life through impactful leadership. I joined this organization to launch the DNI practice. And in that journey, we've partnered with CMA that has been very fortunate in the partnership to help us to develop the content and curriculum around a diversity, equity, and inclusion. With all of that, I turn it over to Dr. Ashley Parker and Dr. Ruben Falogi. Thank you so much. It is such a pleasure to be here today to talk about a topic that I hope is one of great relevance to a lot of the folks that we'll be speaking to. Um, my name is Ashley Parker. I'm a psychologist. Uh, I work at a firm, CMA, and we really believe that people make or break organizations. And so all of our work revolves around helping organizations to hire, develop, retain talent. On a personal level, I am deeply interested in the way that we all experience the world differently and how the world experiences us. I think at work and outside of work, everyone deserves to be seen, heard, understood. And so I am particularly passionate about helping facilitate really meaningful connection among people at work and creating space for people to be their authentic selves. I'm honored to be here with the folks on this call and the folks out there. Thank you all. My name is Dr. Rubin. I am a speaker, consultant, and licensed psychologist, and I work with CMA. I tell people my favorite job is being a loving human because that makes me want to investigate the things that separate us from being loving towards each other. To that end, one of those things is creating inclusive leaders so we can create spaces and institutions that value humans. So I'm excited to deliver this content and to um, give a little taste of uh, some of the work that Ashley and I and Phil and Whit Kiefer and CMA are all passionate about. So our objectives here today are really to, as Dr. Rubin just said, our hope is to plant some seeds. We want to share some things that we've learned in our work as organizational psychologists around what inclusive leadership is, what gets in the way, and what actions each person can take in order to promote inclusion on their teams and in their organizations. We all have opportunities to learn and grow. So this is not coming from a place of judgment. Dr. Rubin and I, we are on the journey too, and we need each other. And so our hope is that this will be a good opportunity, not just to explore this for yourself, but to connect with your colleagues in a meaningful way around it, because this is not the kind of thing that is best done alone. How do we define inclusive leadership? This is a lifelong journey, but here's some starting places. We'll start with valuing uniqueness. We want to be in a place where we can honor and respect the similarities and differences of people, aka the diversity. You know, as CML, I love that this is a part of the values, but we want to create spaces where people can bring their authentic selves to work, whether they're things that we're familiar with or things that we're unfamiliar with, all the quirks. We want people to bring their full selves to work. And that has to do with valuing people's uniqueness. You know, next is fostering a sense of belonging. So if we're going to invite people in, we want to not only just have them at the party, so to speak, 
We want to give them meaning and value at the party. How do we make people feel like they belong in our work environments and that they're integral pieces to the work environment to function well? And a final critical component of inclusive leadership is interrupting behaviors and systems that lead to exclusion, that perpetuate bias and inequity. And this is a tough one. I think we're all on board with that. This is really important. And as we'll talk about in a moment, there are reasons that this is hard. Sometimes we don't even know when that discrimination or inequity is occurring. Sometimes we struggle to know what to do. And even if we do do an initial effort, there's frequently some response that can feel hard and be uncomfortable and be difficult. And so when we think about inclusive leadership, it is not only creating the context for inclusion by simultaneously supporting people in their uniqueness and having them be part of the group. It is about recognizing where are things not going well and how do I wield my authority, my power, a formal or informal authority in a situation to interrupt, interrupt the status quo. Because the status quo has led in many cases to situations in which people are not feeling included at work. People are not being included at work. And so we all hope that one of the things that happens for everyone today is that we all just kind of enhance our social antenna because we all are experiencing the world from our own vantage point. And that vantage point is real and legitimate and has value and things in the world that I might not see. So I need to turn up my social antenna. I need to connect more with people so that I'm more attuned to the ways in which I can identify and interrupt oppression. I love when uh, we do our implicit bias trainings and Ashley talks about the head and the heart, but I decided I'd talk about it today. So y'all, there's plenty of information and plenty of data that suggests that diverse and inclusive environments Work environments specifically enhance employee engagement, productivity, satisfaction, innovation, ultimately profitability. That's what, you know, we're working in business settings. And so if that's the head, how do we say, and what about the heart? Because humans, last time I checked, have hearts and heads, and we can't separate those two, right? And so the heart being, you know, how do we humanize this work experience, because it's very easy to treat humans as objects or as numbers, but behind those objects and numbers, you actually have humans who have souls and who are connected to real life issues that are going on that they're going to bring to work. And so part of the heart is honoring the humanity in people and valuing people as people versus numbers or means to profit. And if you can't get with that alone, just do it and in both. Both are important. And when we talk about this, we're going to touch on both because they are related. The more you can see people as humans, the more they're going to work together and work well together. And ultimately, that helps the people in the business. So what we'll do is we'll talk about some obstacles here. Y'all, before we jump into this, if we do this at our training, I got to just stop the training and be like, y'all, look, you are not responsible for your programming. We are all programmed and socialized into a very disconnecting, separate, oppressive norm. This could be hard to digest, but everybody out there is an exclusive leader by default. And so what we have to do is we have to recognize that that's just the default and the programming, and we don't have to feel shame 
blame, guilt, self-judgment for that, even though sometimes that might pop up. I say that, though, so we can recognize that that's the default, and then we can challenge the default by doing something different. So we're not responsible for how we were programmed into exclusive leaderships, not knowing the bias, so to speak. But what we are responsible for, especially since we're talking about it now, is what we do now and moving forward with the information we have for ourselves and the people around us. Again, we're not responsible for how we were programmed before, but now we are responsible for what we do now and moving forward as inclusive leaders. We don't have to stay in the status quo. The opportunity and why I get so excited about this work is we have choices to be inclusive leaders in every moment. And so that's what we'll talk about. So we'll talk about some of the obstacles at the individual and interpersonal level as humans. And then we'll talk about how those obstacles might show up in an institutional or organizational role as leaders. You know, what I imagine about the folks who are listening is that they are smart, motivated leaders who are eager to learn and grow and who have identified an opportunity, perhaps for themselves or for their organization. And I want to acknowledge that what we're talking about is hard. If inclusive leadership were easy, it would have been done frankly, by pretty much everyone a long time ago. And yet that's not where we find ourselves. That's not what employees report about many of the organizations they're part of. It's not what we're seeing in terms of equitable representation of people in positions of leadership. And so suffice it to say, there are very real obstacles. What we'll be focusing on today is the psychological one. Because, and we'll come back to this later, first thing we can do in this whole big world of things that can sometimes feel outside of our control, first thing we can do is focus on us, deepen the exploration, deepen our awareness and our ability to intervene when we see things. And so that's why we're starting here is because if you are like most every other human I've interacted with in the world, and certainly the leaders who I interact with as an executive coach, this is something that is hard that you feel nervous about. And I think that is important because it shows that you care about it and that you recognize that it's hard. Sometimes folks just say, oh, that's fine. Like, I'll just do it. It'll be easy. And it's not. And so if at this moment you are feeling curious, nervous, anxious, like you recognize there might be a gap between your current inclusive leadership and your desired inclusive leadership, you are not alone. Dr. Rubin and I will share some examples that we've experienced and that we've seen among leaders who we work with. And again, I would just emphasize, I sometimes feel like we're all in our own little room being concerned about these things. And our hope is that this facilitates conversation because other people are experiencing that as well. Thanks for that. I want to start with ignorance. Ignorance, and when I talk about ignorance, let's define it as the lack of knowledge. And what is insidious about ignorance is you don't know what you don't know. Good, well-meaning, loving humans can be going around harming people without even knowing. So let me give you an example about this, because I experienced this when I do trainings. I've experienced this as an employee. I want to talk about colorblindness, this idea that I don't see color. It comes up often. What I think attempt to really connect, I think. I don't see color. I don't want the issues of color to interrupt this connection here. So I understand that intent from people who've said this to me as a Black man. The challenge, though, is the way it impacts me. Because even though it's well-meaning, I always have this glitch like, oh, 
I know you want to connect with me right now. And this color on my skin is very important. It carries a lot of history and importance to me. And you not seeing that is almost like you not seeing me in my totality, my full humanity. So even though you're trying to connect, there's really this disconnect that's happening. And now I'm I'm struck with what am I going to do with this? Am I going to broach this? Am I going to ignore this? And when we talk about creating inclusive environments, this moves us away from inclusion because in these moments, we're literally separating a very important part of who I am away from me. And so I bring this up because, again, I don't think people are saying I want to separate part of who Ruben is or I want to separate part of who this person of color or black person is. I really think there's probably some good intent. And again, we don't know what we don't know. So if you don't know this phenomenon and how it shows up, you're going to harm people inadvertently. And so that's why I bring it up in this sense. And actually, I give us um, a more organizational level, institutional level example of this. It's funny. So I was traveling for work this last week and I was thinking a lot about this webinar. You know, it's important that we have an impact. And I was just thinking about my own journey and this, and I had a moment. So I am a working mother. I have three little boys. They are four, three, and one. And I have been a nursing mom for a lot of the last four years. And this trip that I went on was the first trip in a long time where I didn't have to worry about where to pump. I have for so long been like, where are the outlets? Where's the mom of a pod? Where am I going to pump on the client's site? And I was thinking about this experience relative to our topic here today. And it really resonated for me personally. It was like, gosh, prior to being a pumping mother, it literally never occurred to me what kind of considerations would be relevant for somebody who is breastfeeding and traveling as a working mom. When I'm in it, it is so all-consuming. It's very relevant to me. Even just on the other side of it, it almost has already kind of faded into the distance. And I took a moment to reflect on that. One, I can't imagine that most people who haven't had that experience of being a nursing mother has ever wondered if there's an outlet in the LaGuardia bathroom. Or better, is there literally any other place other than LaGuardia bathroom that you can pump? And so it really struck me. This is a great example, I suspect, of just not knowing what we don't know, number one. Number two, even as I have moved in and out of that identity, it already seems kind of peripheral. And so it really struck me how, one, I don't know what I don't know about a lot of things, nursing motherhood I know about, but even as I've moved out of it, it's sometimes it's very easy out of sight, out of mind. And so I hope that sharing that anecdote will sensitize you perhaps to those things that you might even not know that you don't know, and that is affecting the experience of people who you might be working with. And that again would help promote some humility. Like, I just don't know what I don't know, and I'm open to it. So Dr. Rubin, when you were sharing about, you just don't know what you don't know, that was an aha moment for me. It's the last trip. But then yes, now I will transition over to kind of the organizational ways in which not knowing what we don't know hurts organizations' abilities to foster inclusivity. And these are things that are built in or not built in to some of the ways that we understand employee performance and the performance of leaders. So we do a lot of work with engagement surveys. And an important part of inclusive leadership is to understand the experiences of members of marginalized groups within your organization. And I can't tell you how common it is that that data isn't collected or evaluated. 
right? So failing to collect data on employee experience, especially among marginalized people, is one way in which this ignorance or lack of knowledge perpetuates at an institutional or organizational level. Another way in which ignorance and lack of knowledge among leaders is perpetuated via institutionalized systems is by not having competencies that relate to diversity, equity, and inclusion embedded in the performance management system. That leaders, if they're not, it's not on their radar, then it's certainly reasonable for them not to invest time, effort, energy, and attention. And so it really begs the question, what can organizations be doing to facilitate this kind of recognition to get out of the hole of lack of knowledge and create the expectation at an organizational level that we all have an awareness and a knowledge? Thank you so much, Ashley Park. I want to talk about fear. The psychologist in me just loves talking about fear because it's such a very powerful emotion that influences all of us to different degrees. So when I talk about fear, I want us to think about an emotion that leads to fear-based responses. And one of these responses is avoidance. And we all have it. So, you know, don't worry. An example that I want to share is we've all been in group spaces. And to some extent, we're all aware of biases and stereotypes and things that might be hurtful or harmful to different degrees. Some of us may be more or less, but I want to bring up situations where we know things are wrong when they're said. There's a choice point when we hear these things. We'll call it a microaggression. So we might hear someone get microaggressed. Generally, it could be a man, somebody who is poor, somebody who's differently able. We hear a joke. Usually it's a joke, typically in work environments, a joke that could have been hurtful or promote the oppression of a group, of a marginalized group. And we're at a choice point to say something or not say something. And because of the way groupthink works, that fear of breaking the social norm, which in some situations, many instances is silence, that fear motivates us to not say anything. It motivates us to silence. And so I bring this up because fear itself isn't inherently bad. Like we all have fear. I get afraid every time I do presentations in front of groups of people, but it's what we do with the fears that, that's important. And so, you know, alternatively, when we hear these comments and we feel this fear, that fear, instead of it controlling our behavior, what it can be is an indicator that we need to do something. Now, what that thing is, we might not know, but it doesn't have to control us is what I want to get here. But it often does. You know, I think about in an organizational context, how fear operates. And I can't help but think about the strategic planning retreat. I don't know if you all have done those kind of SWOT analyses, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And sometimes it's interesting to see what is put in the opportunities bucket and what is put in the threat bucket. And sometimes I wonder, is it fear that might motivate some things to be seen as threats versus opportunities? Is it fear that could be leading toward some kind of strategic plan? or effort that kind of goes with what has worked well historically and perhaps is a bit more risk averse around running to try new things. And so when you think about just broadly as your organizations are really identifying what are the opportunities, what are the threats, where are we going to direct our attention in terms of initiative? It might be a helpful time to pause and reflect on what is motivating some of the strategic decision making. Is, for example, the assumption that your clients will continue to have the same demographics as they have historically. Is that true or is that indicated? And then two, what is your response to that? 
because it would make sense to have demographic shifts of your client provoke some anxiety or fear. The question is, as Dr. Rubin alluded to, what do you do with that? And how do you make sure that you are being proactive and intentional about not reacting to that fear, but proactively creating a space to navigate those new challenges? We're going to go to uh, the struggle to create psychological safety on teams. I know we're talking about groups a lot, but that's just what we are as humans. We're individuals and then we're groups together and then groups create the institutions. So as leaders, there's almost a heightened responsibility of what we model and how we engage in group spaces because folks are looking at the leaders, whether we want to or not, no matter how much we leverage and share power. It's very important that leaders are aware of what they're modeling. And inadvertently, I think many leaders don't practice and aren't aware of what they are modeling in the group spaces. And they're very subtle things, too. So, for instance, shutting down the sit. Somebody says something that's contrary to what I believe as a leader or what the leader believes, and then it gets shut down. What is that modeling for the other people in that space? Or even something that we see as subtle can be very big to other people in the space. I'll give you an example. So I've been in a work environment where I've had a colleague who has a visual impairment. She Part of her accommodation is she needs the slides that we're going to use or whatever we're going to be looking at visually ahead of the meeting. And so if said leader doesn't send out the slides ahead of time, this person is going to be excluded from whatever content is shared in that meeting. That happened several times with this colleague and with this leader. I share this example because something so small as sending out slides that we see as small as able-bodied people can create an intense marginalization experience for people who are marginalized. In this case, this person who has a visual impairment. And actually for the whole group, because me as somebody who cares about my colleagues, I recognize what was happening. I was thinking during them, instead of focusing on the content of the meeting, I'm worried about, dang, is my colleague even going to be able to participate? So not only does it affect the marginalized person, it affects the entire culture, the entire group. And we're kind of going through, well, here's how this shows up individually and interpersonally. And then here's how it shows up in systems. And Dr. Rubin, you said it before, systems are made up of people. And so it's not so simple. When you think about your organizational norm, what are kind of the rules of engagement? How is work done? Who does what in meetings? Who is expected to take the note? All of these things, data. It gives us insights into practices that may or may not foster inclusive spaces for everybody. And so in our work, providing consultation to organizations, we're interested in learning. How is it determined who's facilitating a meeting? How is everyone's voice encouraged? And how is their room made proactively for those voices? How are leaders modeling and setting a tone that frequently goes much further than the meetings they themselves are in? And how is this continuously on the radar? Because in the absence of something being on the radar, we all just kind of go with the flow. And that may not be in alignment with your vision for yourself as an inclusive leader. So suffice it to say, these are just a few of the obstacles. And we've started again with really the psychological uh, challenges that can and frequently do emerge. And our hope is that our ability to understand and navigate these sets the stage for perhaps more complex obstacles.
with that, let's transition and talk about action steps. Whenever we do this work, very frequently, folks will share how they see it in their environment. And I'm very grateful that they do because it is real and they see it. And I'm so glad that we created an environment where they can talk about it. And I think a really important part of the process is not just to see it out there, but to see it in here. Inclusive leadership starts with my understanding of myself, my values, my strengths and development areas, my impact is really where I have the most control and influence. And so we really suggest starting with that, even though you may be identifying other leaders who could and should be on their own journey, it's a bit harder to look in the mirror. And we really want to start with that. So first thing is that if you are like most people, you probably haven't taken a class on self-reflection. I think as a society, we don't do a very good job equipping people with tools to understand yourself in a meaningful way, not in a unproductive rumination way, which I could write the book on that too. And so what we suggest around productive self-reflection is yourself some questions. How am I protecting the status quo? Which is to say perhaps maintaining systems that are exclusive, that avoid important, meaningful, productive, healthy conflict that help me and other people in positions of privilege or power feel comfortable but might lead other people not to feel comfortable. How do my identities show up in my leadership? You know, I said before, I am deeply interested in the way we experience the world and the way the world experiences us. And I'm in control in some way over how the world experiences me, how I talk, how I present. But there are some things I don't have control over that perhaps you've already rendered some judgments about even in the short time. Age, appearance, insert the blank. And so how are these functioning in my leadership? What are they doing what I want them to do? How can I demonstrate in a more proactive way how I want to show up as a leader? It's also important in this self-reflection. I think feelings have gotten a bad rap in our culture, and that really is doing yourself a disservice. Understanding emotion and using that emotion to spark action is an incredibly valuable opportunity. And Dr. Rubin gave an example of it earlier. Fear is not in and of itself problematic. It's what motivation, what action does that spark? If fear leads you to avoid, that's not helpful. If fear leads you to move in, approach, it can be incredibly energizing. And so even in this moment, as Dr. Rubin and I are talking, do a self-assessment. How are you feeling and how can that feeling be directed toward action? Dang, Ashley, you get me fired up over here. (laughs) (laughs) So next, y'all, I want to talk about owning and embracing and even promoting a growth mindset, not only for yourself, but for the people around you. We live in a world where we've created an idea of perfect. And I just want to let you all know it's not real. Perfect is not real. It's fake. So what we need is we need more leaders who embrace perfect imperfection. Perfect imperfection. Perfect imperfection. And what this is about is Relieve yourself of the pressure of having to be perfect at this, of having to not make any mistakes. If you do this correctly, if you're an inclusive leader, you are going to make mistakes and that is okay. Now, with that, 
We don't want to repeat the same mistakes over and over again, because those might not be mistakes that might be intentional behavior. <laughs> but no, the idea you all is like, this is a journey. Like I was saying earlier, we've been programmed into a lot of nonsense. And because of that, we have to give ourselves grace to grow and learn. And that's what this journey towards inclusive leadership is about. It's about allowing ourselves to be in a space where we can continuously show up. Every single action, that's why I get excited about this content. Some people, when they hear DEI, they, they freeze up. But for me, I get excited because I know every one of my choices is an opportunity to include somebody, to include different parts of myself that I've learned to even separate from myself. And so the idea is to continuously show up. Embrace the practice of learning and growing instead of knowing. Demonstrate those actions in every action you choose or don't choose. In psychology, we talk about values-based action. Actions are either taking you towards where you want to go, in this situation, being an inclusive leader, or not. Just make that a process instead of a one-time thing that you do and you think you're done. Because if you do it like that, the latter, you're going to struggle as an inclusive leader, I think. Next is, you don't have to do this on your own, you all. Finding your supports and resources that are going to help you at the individual level. One thing Ashley and I offer is, you know, especially through what Kiefer is multicultural coaching. This is an opportunity for exploration where you have a space created with someone in this situation, in our situation, it'd be Ashley or I, where you can have a space where you can examine stereotypes and assumptions. You can acknowledge blind spots without fear, shame, guilt, blame. Ultimately, you have somebody you can help problem solve action steps towards inclusive leadership. Because again, you all, we didn't get this in school. There's often insufficient training in this. And so it's okay to use your resources. And in this instance, it's multicultural coaching. Shifting from the self to interpersonal, we can only know so much about ourselves from thinking about ourselves and doing that type of self-reflection. We need other people. And so the ways in which you invite feedback is a critical part of inclusive leadership. We need to understand what our impact is, not just fall back on what we intend or what we think. And here I really caution it. The absence of feedback about the extent to which you're inclusive isn't necessarily a good sign. We want to actively elicit people's thoughts about the extent to which we are helping them feel that they are unique, you know, valued for their uniqueness, that they belong, and that you actively disrupt examples of exclusion. An important part of feedback, and we could do a whole day seminar in feedback, is accepting that feedback with grace. Perhaps one thing you could do in a moment of getting that feedback is to say thank you. Thank you. And give yourself the emotional permission and the time to process it. But in that moment, truly that feedback is a gift. And think about how hard it has been in your professional life to give tough feedback to people, particularly for people in power, about things that are hard to talk about. I have gotten tough feedback about DE&I, and it hurts. I think to myself, gosh, I'm so grateful they said something to me. And I must have done something right for them to feel comfortable enough to tell me. Because think about how hard it is to actually say that out loud. And so eliciting feedback is an important part of that interpersonal step around inclusive leadership. Yo, we got to practice building healthy relationships. Ashley and I do an implicit bias training and we tell folks that um, 
you got to check on your marginalized folks. And then there's always this caveat that says, oh, 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 before you just jump into checking on the black folks you work with or the women you work with or the differently able folks you work with, it helps to have a healthy relationship. So we're not tokenizing people or fetishizing people. With this developing healthy relationships, y'all, that's why we talk about the heart. It's going to take some vulnerability and authenticity and some practice. The beauty is this is a skill. So the more you practice it, the better you're going to get at it. What this means is inclusive leaders, they're going to have to put themselves, we're going to have to put ourselves in places and spaces where we might not feel comfortable, where we might be around people who we've never met, who we don't completely understand. And that's how we grow that muscle, so to speak, and form healthy relationships with people who are not only similar to us, but who are different than us. And that's going to help us cultivate inclusive environments. We have the repetition and process of doing it in our lives. All right. So we're going to move to the institutional level. and We'll wrap this thing up. So some institutional action steps is, y'all, interrupt the status quo. And I know it sounds easy, but it's not. And that's okay. Because anything worth fighting for is going to be challenging. But with practice, we can do it. And so one of the things we talk about in these trainings is really starting to understand how in each of our roles, whether you're leader, employee, there comes power in that role, power and responsibility. And so the more we can investigate how that power shows up and how we can leverage it, the more we're going to be able to leverage that power and interrupt the status quo. We want to, as leaders, not only continue that learning and understanding of identity and power and how it shows up, but then also invite other people into that process. Inclusive leadership, I think, is about inviting other people to do the work too, because it's going to, it's an all hands on deck affair. The leaders aren't mm-hmm. just responsible for this. Everybody is. And so how do we invite everybody into this learning at the various levels, individual, institutional, and societal context. I had a great conversation with one of my coaching clients this morning, and he gave an exceptional example of this. Let's hear he it. is um, in higher education and medicine, and he talked about his experience serving on selection or admissions committees and how they determine which of the you know med students they're going to admit, let's say, for the residency or things like that. It was an exceptional expression of having institutional impact because he's transforming the constellation of the incoming class by introducing topics like this into the room where those decisions are made. And it has a really powerful effect that I think had some very immediate impacts in terms of creating spaces for other people to talk about that. And certainly it has a long-term impact who's part of the group. Thank you for sharing that, Ashley. So next on this institutional level is how do we honestly assess our impact as inclusive leaders? To me, I think this is the process of continuously questioning our impact. How do we do this? We question our metrics. What is the data saying? And what are we doing based on that data? How are we practicing and inviting accountability? How do we make our individual and institutional goals, especially in the areas of DE&I, visible? And then how do we talk about the progress and lack thereof to be transparent? Last is, 
How do we facilitate learning in the application of diversity, equity, inclusion? We've been talking about action steps kind of for ourselves as inclusive leaders, but then how do we bring others into it, our employees, the people around us? You know, how do we learn and practice facilitating conversations on this topic, talking about difficult things? How do we invite trainings or more education, continued education on these topics into our spaces? You know, an example, like our implicit bias training that Ashley and I do, you know, it creates opportunities for other people to learn no matter where you're at. And so I think that's a responsibility, very important responsibility of inclusive leaders. And to that end, you all, I think we've shared a lot here. And I think it may be overwhelming for some. Some people might just be locked in. Some people might be super excited. Wherever you're at, we want to remind folks that you don't have to do all this right now and you don't have to take all this on right now. I actually think it's important that you don't. But what you want to do is take a chunk off. What's just a little uncomfortable and how can you focus on that? And then once you make some progress there, how can you take another bite? Because we want this to be a sustainable journey, not just something you do and you're done with. We want this to be a lifelong, career-long journey for you and the people around you because it's going to make you an inclusive leader. And we need those given the space that we're in as a society. Thank you so much, Dr. Ashley, Dr. Rubin. Thank you. I love the information just as much. I love the energy. It really shows your passion and commitment to this topic. You know, you've said a lot. It's a lot to unpack. Just want to say, you know, thank you for helping us to define what inclusive leadership is, really helping us to understand why inclusion matters. You know, Dr. Rubin, you gave the example to say that we're not responsible for our programming. Don't personalize this, but identify it. And then you can make a change. And then to identify obstacles, Dr. Parker, First time I think I've ever said or talked about or thought about a pumping mom, but thank you. I think it really gave insight into understanding what people go through that you might not have experienced yourself. So great example on that. And then you guys went through giving us really thoughtful action steps. Dr. Rubin, you said, let's say it three times, perfect imperfection, perfect imperfection, perfect imperfection. You talked about individual, interpersonal, and institutional. So I thank you for all the information. As Whit Kiefer, if we've launched this diversity, equity, inclusion practice, I think a lot of things that you highlighted really speak to what our practice has been intentional about creating. We're looking at assessment, letting the data really identify where the issues are. From that, developing training. Dr. Rubin, I think you identified the implicit bias training. We're intentional in gaining insight as well as the workshop. And then beyond the workshop, how do we make this a behavioral change? So our implicit Mm -hmm. bias, every participant, 30 days, 60 days, and 90 days post the workshop. They get thought leadership and resources really to help move that needle and have behavioral change. You mentioned multicultural coaching. When I came to CMA with the concept around executive coaching through the lens of diversity, equity, inclusion, you guys have been such a trusted partner to help develop that curriculum and content. So thank you for that. You know, for me as practice leader, if you have any questions for those that have watched this program, please feel free to visit our website at whitkeefer.com. Or you can contact me individually or personally at pburton, P-B-U-R-T-O-N, at whitkiefer.com. Thank you so much. I hope that everyone has enjoyed this as I have. I don't know if you saw me moving around, but I was taking notes and writing, jotting ideas down, <laughs> thoughts down. So I hope everyone enjoyed this webinar. If you have any questions, again, feel free to reach out, whitkiefer.com, or myself as a practice leader, pburton at whitkiefer.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all. 
Thank you for tuning in. We invite you to visit wikifer.com to learn more about our expertise in leadership and view our open searches. You can follow Wikifer on our socials, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Wikifer. Wikifer makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. Reliance on the information provided in this podcast is undertaken at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Third-party materials or the contents of any third-party site referenced in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, standards, or policies of the keeper. The keeper assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy or completeness of the content contained in third-party materials or on third-party sites referenced in this podcast or the compliance with applicable laws of such materials and or links referenced herein. Woodkeeper makes no warranty that this podcast or the server that makes it available is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. Woodkeeper expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast for the information presented in this